Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric, and I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your generous support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena a little more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at letshearitcast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Yes, what he said. Now, let's get to the show. Let's hear it. Here we are. We're back for Let's Hear It. Man, oh man, oh man. I can't wait. I can't wait to get into this one. Um, tell us a little about, bit about what we're about to hear, and then I've got some things to say before we before we get into it. <laughs> I have things to say. Yeah, I will be heard. Yeah. Attention <laughs> must be paid. That's right. <laughs> we just keep we just keep name checking death of a salesman for those of you who remember. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> I I interviewed Ben uh, Ben McBride, who is the co-director of Pico, which is an organization, a grassroots advocacy organization that is a an organization that brings together faith faith based organizations. So it is is more of a kind of a collaborative organization than anything else. And Ben is also a pastor. And Ben and I met in Cuba. We met, <laughs> we met in Havana. Yeah, where yeah, I just. Stop it right now. I know, I know. It. I'm sorry. We so, met in Havana. Wow, <laughs> ben and I will always have Havana. <laughs> we met in Cuba. We were on uh, on an educational trip working on othering and belonging, which mm. I won't get too much into the trip, but it was led by John A. Powell, who we will also, if the stars align, have on this, on this podcast in the not-too-distant future. And right. John is, uh, he leads the Haas Institute uh, an institute at Berkeley, the Haas Institute at Berkeley, working on race and equity and social change. And and John Powell is kind of like the Yoda of this work. And Ben works with him, and Ben attended this week-long symposium in Havana. And that's how we met. And we spent a lot of time together on planes and trains and automobiles, and we drank rum together, and we spent a lot of time talking. And we had, I've been telling people, more I had more authentic conversations about race in one mm. week than I had in my previous half a decade plus. And that, I mean, maybe that's a shame, but it's the truth. And it was really meaningful for me. And, and so I said to Ben, we, we, we just have to recreate these conversations that we had in 30 minutes. And you're like, all right, let's do it. And this was our attempt, our game attempt to do that. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, it's, I would say it's clear that one of the reasons maybe you were able to have those conversations is just because of who you're able to talk with and have those conversations with. Um, Pico, California, it's P-I-C-O, in case you're wondering, and um, they self-describe people. Pico, California supports grassroots organizing, which enables people of faith to build power to reshape their lives and their communities. This is an essay in generosity, Mr. Brown. This is an essay in generosity. And um so this is Eric Brown with the Reverend Ben McBride. Let's hear it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this time is Ben McBride, who is the co-director at California Pico, 
and a pastor and uh, my new almost favorite person on earth. We we, <laughs> we just spent uh, an, an incredibly interesting week in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I really want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about what you do. I love. I would like to talk about Pico first, and then we'll talk some about your history. It is. I have had so much fun getting to know you, Ben. I just can't stand it. No, oh, you as well. It was a fantastic opportunity to get a chance to spend some time. So let's start. Let's start by talking about Pico. What What does it mean to be the co-director, and how do you share your toys with your co-director? Well, see, now you're really trying to open up a whole can of worms. I, I, I didn't know that was uh, in the cards. Well, the work of Pico California, we've been around for about 25 years. It is a network of organizations that are working together to try to organize people in faith institutions and in communities to try to bring about social change by impacting existing systems and structures But I think at the root of it, we're trying to really figure out what does it mean to expand belonging for the state of California, a progressive state that has all of the markings and politics to suggest it is an inclusive place. But for those of us who've lived here, we know there's been a different experience. And so we're working to ensure that the systems and structures are creating belonging where everyone has the the chance to thrive and have agency over their lives. So California looks blue, but it isn't always as blue as it looks. Well, you know, blue blue is 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 very much so a sense of perspective, right? Um, <laughs> there's this notion that it's blue, it's progressive, but we're living in realities where I think all human beings want very similar things. People want to be able to take care of their families. They want to have some fun here and there. They want to do something that's meaningful, and they want to have a place to live. And so when you throw all of those people with a bunch of different stories into a state, we all got here at different times, different ancestors brought us here for different reasons. And oftentimes those stories go unaddressed and not talked about. And so we end up with systems and structures that, although many of us might agree with the same idea as to the kind of communities we want to live in, we haven't learned how to really create the communities that enable us to live amongst one another in peace So we're hoping that we can help people, particularly those who are anchored by a sense of values, figure out how they might be able to serve that cause. Your background puts you in a good position to have these kinds of conversations. A little bit, a little bit. So you are are a a pastor and you used to... Preach. You had a regular, you had a regular gig as a pastor, did you not? I had a regular little brick and mortar situation going on. <laughs> how, how did? Tell me about that. Yeah, well, you know, I I was very much so on my journey to trying to figure out how I could accumulate all the four button suits that I could and stand behind <laughs> microphones and articulate all the great one liners that I practice in the bathroom mirror, getting out of the shower. But no, I mean seriously, had been involved for ten years trying to figure out how to help people who were gathering in spiritual places think about their own lives, and but mainly focused on their spirituality. Uh, but I think in 2006 was the year that I was pastoring in the city of Oakland, and we had 148 murders that year. And I remember the thought inside the building was, let's just pray and believe that uh, a mystical power would change the reality of what was happening outside the four walls. And there was something in me that just felt that that was way too convenient. And so over the course of some time, uh, I, you know, the early joke in Oakland was that I went into retirement and uh, I stopped pastoring and got engaged with the work happening in the city of Oakland to try to reduce violence. But a key part 
of that change for me was that I relocated myself with my wife and three daughters into a part of Oakland that they were calling the kill zone of East Oakland at that time to not just try to work on the violence, but actually to live in the communities where it was most prevalent. That totally changed my life. I came in kind of with a messianic orientation that I was coming to change the city, not recognizing the city really needed to change me. And it mm-hmm. uh, totally just transformed my way of looking, not just at problems, but looking at people and looking at myself and recognizing that in trying to respond to any one of those factors, uh, there's going to have to be some real changes that happen all along that spectrum. Whoa. What was what was the first day living in your new oh, wow. digs like? Oh, so I'm going to give it to you raw and uncut. Go I come rolling down 60th Avenue. And as I pull in front of my house, there is one of my neighbors who has on swimming trunks in the middle of the street on a lawn chair. It's a pretty warm uh, day out in East Oakland. And I'm sitting there asking myself, what the hell did I just get myself into? Uh, Get out of my car. We're going into our house. Finally, after we get the first shift of everything moved into our house, I'm there and my wife leaves to go out and pick up some uh, miscellaneous items she needs to grab at the store to get through the first couple days. And I uh, put my daughters to bed and I start hearing gunshots outside. Boom, 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 boom. And so, you know, I immediately get down on my knees and I start praying. And I'm saying, oh, what did I just get myself into? And then I hear more gunshots. Boom, 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 boom. And so I start praying even harder. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what 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 have I gotten into and then it just sounds like it's World War III outside in my house. First night, and I am praying super hard, and I keep praying, and then it just keeps going. And finally, I get up from my knees, and I go and open up the door and creak out, and I see fireworks. The Oakland A's had just won a baseball game. <laughs> and I just realized in that moment that this was going to be a long journey of me checking my assumptions living in this neighborhood. <laughs> That's a great story. So what have you learned? Uh, Wow. I think some of the things that came out really true for me was that people have different experiences, but as human beings have very similar things that they're wrestling with, even though they have very different experiences. I think some of the biggest things that jumped out to me was that people who were experiencing violence were not looking to be saved. They weren't looking for saviors. They were looking for the opportunities to change their own dynamics in ways that were meaningful for them, ways that were accessible to them, but they were very much so open to help. Uh, What I also learned was that most young men who were involved in gun violence were involved in gun violence because the adults that they were in relationship with did not make them feel safe. So they picked up a gun, not because they were violent, but actually because they were afraid and because the adults in their community did not provide them the security that was necessary. The police department didn't provide them security. The school system didn't provide them security and their own families. Many of them didn't provide them security. And so I had to reorient myself to think about gun violence, not as these super predators, as we heard from uh, Senator Clinton years ago, um, or even the ways in which the media might characterize these individuals, but to see them as who they were, beautiful human beings who were living amidst some great challenges, who were afraid, whose humanity needed to be seen, whose agency needed to be respected, that they actually had the potential in them 
to change what needed to happen in their communities. And all I needed to do was to figure out how to help serve that, how to learn, and to really understand what partnership could look like and realize that the only people that could stop the violence in Oakland were the young men themselves. We have had, you and I have had a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. uh, around this topic, some of them over uh, the second or third rum in Havana uh, (laughs) on long bus rides and in other settings. And we've just now come out of two extremely painful and violent weekends Mm. in the United States after we got back. And we're having this conversation in the middle of August or the beginning of August. I have no idea when it's going to air, mm-hmm. but you could make the point that the, a lot of the violence coming out of these men, and, and they've all been men, might have happened as a result of people feeling afraid. Mm. Without, I don't want to belabor this at all, but, but are there parallels or lessons to be learned as we look across violence in America? I think there is an important conversation to be had around why is it in this country, not like Many other countries, developed countries around the world, are we a country that is so enamored with guns and with violence? It is really, for those of us who have traveled, been blessed to travel, an absurd reality to think that the only way we can find safety is by having more guns in the country than you have people. That aside is a whole conversation within itself that is worth its own deep engagement and reflection. But I I think alongside of it, one of the important things that I've been reflecting on, and I think we're going to need to continue to reflect because whenever this is aired, unfortunately, there will have been many more mass shootings that have happened. But what we recognize is that the majority of gun violence that's happening in the U.S. are not mass shootings. They are shootings that are happening in communal violence dynamics on a daily basis. And I think what it's coming down to is the fact that human beings who don't believe that they belong, are going to engage with other human beings in ways that are informed by that sense of a lack of identity and a sense of not having belonging. And so I think when we think about what the answers are, when we, you know, in a small case study wanted to respond to violence in Oakland, it wasn't through gun policy. You know, in my neighborhood, I asked one of the young men, how can I get a gun? And he told me I can have one for you within four hours And it wasn't through a legal thing and a background check wasn't going to change it. He was going to get it through a whole nother set of means. So gun policy alone is not really what's going to impact the conversation. It was about kind of doing what I talk about through build, bridge and belong, building shared humanity. So we had to figure out how do you build with these young men and help them recognize that they have something to bring. We have something to bring and let's figure out how to co-create a future together bridge across those differences. And so we're, we're going to have different realities that we can't just tolerate with one another or have to agree, but we're going to have to figure out how to bridge. How, how do I see it from your point of view, even if I don't take in that as myself and, and, and finding ways on at least understanding how you see the world the way in which you do, and then figuring out how we create structures and systems. And so for us in Oakland, that was ensuring that we repurpose the city in ways that could resource the kind of opportunities that they needed. But more than anything, you know, it's about relationships. And people say nothing stops a bullet like a job. I think that's BS. (laughs) Nothing stops a bullet like another human being being in relationship with somebody who was going to shoot that gun. And when we get people being in deep relationship with other people, you get different results. You've been, speaking of which, you've been working with the Oakland police. I had. For sure, for some time. That Talk about bridging across differences. Mm-hmm. What's that like? 
Well, I mean, you're talking about a whole nother group of individuals who are afraid, um, who have accepted a tribal identity oftentimes as a way to find a sense of belonging and a sense of safety. I met some amazing human beings that were in the police department that I work with. And then I also met some human beings inside the department that I was had a lot of deep concern as to why they were being given a gun and the most power that we have under the law to take away someone's life and freedom. Today, interestingly enough, is August 9th is the day that Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson five years ago. And myself and others had the uh, blessed opportunity of being on the ground when a lot of uh, the uprising led by young people was happening. But during that time, I was having to go back and forth between Ferguson and coming back to Oakland and training police officers around something we called procedural justice and implicit bias training. And what I found in that was that very similarly to the young men who were involved in communal gun violence, once the police officers felt like they were seen as human beings and there was someone who was willing to disassociate them as a human being from the system that they were employed in, be hard on the system, but be soft on the people there became this amazing opportunity for us to identify and access new possibilities, new ways that they could behave, new ways that they would even be willing to challenge their institution when they felt that they were seen and you were offering them a new place to belong. It was hard work to do because I come into that story with my own trauma and my family, and my own story of police violence. But what it taught in me was this notion that in order for us to get to some of the solutions we want to get to in the future, it is going to require some of us to have to do the work of how do we move past our own trauma so that we can actually serve the cause of bridging and creating new opportunities. It's not for everybody, um, but it is for some people. And we need to figure out who those some people are and ensure that they're engaging in that kind of work. But we've had conversations on this show about seeing, mm. and it seems like the first step to good communications is actually seeing. Mm -hmm. You have to understand who it is you're speaking with. You have to, in one way or another, take in their reality yeah. into yeah. your own. And these days, in our current, in the current political climate, as they would say, <laughs> uh, that's really hard to do because a lot of what we're seeing makes us angry. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like what I say oftentimes, though, too, is that I know that we're all like getting rightfully so pissed off at what's happening. The discourse is in the toilet. You know, uh, we, we've got a crazy person in the White House. There's a whole lot of traumatic things happening before. And we have been here before. We've been here before, right? In the Surtis <laughs> yes, country. Like yeah. this, this is this is another episode, you know. I mean, people love to say this is these are isolated episodes. These are isolated episodes. I'm like, well, when you get enough isolated episodes together, you have a series, right? <laughs> like this is a series that we've had for some time. And what we have learned in our story over the last 250 to 300 years is that in moments like these, the only way that we find our way out of them is by people who help us. Um, rise to our greater selves, to reimagine the way which we think about the win, to re-understand the way in which we think about the collective, to tell new stories, to offer new themes that invite people to, to see and then to ultimately move into different ways of standing up for one another, which means that we're going to have to build bridges with people, not just people we like, or the people who agree with us, or the people who share our political persuasion, but you can also figure out how to see the humanity of people with whom you differ from. It's not as hard 
as I think sometimes we make it to be, but it does require us to take some risks and and be vulnerable. And, you know, there there is a certain level of risk aversion that comes with the equation of what it means to be a successful American that I think a lot of folks in the U.S. digest. But I think if we would find a way to, you know, maybe you ain't got to drink a whole cup of, of risk, but maybe you can put a little risk in your in your in your security coffee. You know, we can find some way to take some steps that you might not be able to take right now. On that note, we're going to break for just a moment cool. and we're going to come back and we're going to go even deeper. We're going to talk about race. All right. Good. Good. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we're back with Ben McBride, uh, co-director of Pico, California. And we are about to get, <laughs> it's about to get serious. I, I've been telling people that after having spent a week in Cuba, I had more authentic conversations about race than mm. I had in the previous 54 years wow, wow. of my life. And some of it was with you. Mm. And we I thought we had really authentic, honest conversations about race that didn't, for me anyway, didn't feel loaded. They felt generous. Mm -hmm. And I thought you were really generous with me. Given that you are, you're talking about building bridges across difference in the, in the United States, clearly race is a central, if not the central conversation that needs Mm -hmm. to be had that, that may not be, that's probably not being had. Do you agree with that? And let's just have this conversation. We we were talking. We were in Nevada. I was like, oh man, if we could just have the conversation. If we just if we would only had the, <laughs> the the tape recorder on. I don't know that we could recreate this conversation, but I'd love to get it started. Dr. Jennifer Eberhard out of Stanford says that the studies tell us that when we start engaging in conversations about race, our bodies have the same physiological response as if we're getting ready to be in the middle of a fight. Like that that is the degree of racial anxiety that most of us are carrying around on a daily basis because we haven't been offered a story or practices on how we connect around what has been a very painful and awful story, not just in the back, but even coming up into the present. The challenge of it is, I think, when you get into the notions of race is, what you see depends on where you're standing. It's that powerful C.S. Lewis quote. So people are seeing the world and seeing the notions of the country around race based upon how they're brought up, their the practices of their family. And these experiences are very, very different. Now, I think we're in this moment right now where we got to figure out what we're going to do, right, as we're on this journey of becoming, because the reality is You know, there are a lot of white folks who are starting to wake up to the notion that white supremacy and racism is a real thing in the United States of America, that it's not a KKK hood, that it's not a skinhead with the big leather boots on, but that it can 
It can look like, you know, uh, uh, orange tan and, and blonde hair in the highest office in the land. It can look in a lot of different ways. So there are people that are coming awaken to that. And then you got a lot of black folks and other people of color who in a lot of different ways have been living out the reality of these challenges for a long time. So what that means is you've got some people who are saying we need to do something. And then there's other people that are saying, well, damn, we've been saying we need to do something for a long time. And, you know, you're a little Johnny come late to the party. And what does that mean? And so I, I think there's no way for us, even though we have racial anxiety, to get into the work and the conversation together without there being some tough goals at it. You know, when I think about, you know, you and I being able to to have some of those good conversations about race, I think there was a context that created space for us to engage with one another. There were dynamics. We were engaged in story. There was the conditions were made and kind of set for us to have an opportunity. We didn't have to take that opportunity, but the conditions were created for us to make that opportunity. And we, I think, chose to see past whatever initial thoughts we had about one another and say, let's take a risk and have a deeper conversation. We need to figure out in the United States how we create the conditions whereby people can begin to have some of these same experiences. Without those conditions, I think it's going to be pretty difficult um, for us to to make some strides around race. And I think one of those big ways is going to be just getting clear on the story that we're talking about on how we got where we got. But if we're all operating from a different history, it's going to be really hard to talk about a shared present. Mm -hmm. What's your story? What 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 do you believe the the story of of either race or being an African American man in twenty first century America is? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's it's only been recently, maybe over the last four to five years, that I really wrestled with this notion of what it means to be American. You know, the first time I felt American was when I was over in Israel Palestine, and uh, uh, someone walked up to me and said American, and I was like, hmm. I guess so. You know, I've always, always thought of myself as black and and black didn't necessarily mean American because for me, American meant white. And I certainly was not that. I'm, I'm the descendants of Africans who were enslaved here, who were stolen off of their land. Some sold away from their brothers in Africa and others kidnapped and, and pulled away from their uh, homeland. And so that means that I come from a people who come out of Red Springs in North Carolina, who come out of the South, um, people who suffered a lot of violence. I have a great uncle who was killed by the Klan back in the early 1900s, uh, tied to a railroad track, uh, hit over the head with a hammer and run over by a train. Um, I, I come from uh, a story of my dad who met Dr. King when he was uh, 13 years old. Dr. King took him and some other little boys um, into a bathroom and showed them the water pipes going to the white fountain and the colored fountain. My dad says first time he really recognized we were drinking the same water as their white counterparts. And they have this wonderful experience. But then my dad is arrested in the student protests with a lot of other young people and forced into jails where kids were urinating and defecating on themselves as they were afraid. And white police officers were standing on the outside laughing at them. So the notions of race and racial terror and violence it's something that's been very real in my family. When I think about it from my own story, it is a reality that being black in America means that I have to start from a place recognizing that it is more likely than not that I will be perceived as a threat or as violent or as not belonging to my white counterparts or others. I have to start off my day with that being the more than likely reality that I'm having to deal with and then work backwards 
Well, unfortunately, what that means for me is that there's going to be judgments that I'm going to make around white presenting people um, as a way of making sure that I go home at night that may or may not be fair. I think what what I need oftentimes when I think about I'm in conversations with white relatives that are like, well, what is it that we can do? I'm like, understand that world for me. Understand that when I give you a curt comment or a short look and you take it offense and say, hey, we're all the same. And why is this guy being tough with me? It might be because you got to realize that the world that I'm walking around in is not the world you're walking around in. And the level of generosity that you might feel you get to walk around with is not the level of generosity I get to walk around with. And so if we're going to be in relationship, it's going to require the both of us to really be aware of what are the privileges that you have? What are the restrictions that I'm operating from? And and what's your willingness not just to just see me in the sense of, hey, I, I see you as a big black brother, but I've started to do my work of understanding what it means to be a black person in this society. And, and from that, I'm going to really get clear on what does it mean for me to be a white relative that's not just an ally. Because I tell people, like, I don't need no allies. I need siblings. Right. I want siblings. I want relatives. Right. Like allies write letters for you when you're in trouble. Allies feel bad for you. Right. When you're in trouble. Siblings get in the way of trouble for you. Siblings recognize that if it's happening to you, it's happening to me. And I think the more that we as black folks get a chance to see white folks and other folks showing up in that way, it'll begin to manifest that uh, maybe we really are working on something bigger. Well, I have two questions for you. One is, did you see Kirsten Gillibrand in, yeah. in the uh, debate? In the debate, And what did you think about what she said th- about, yeah. about race? I thought it was dope. I mean, I thought it was dope. I thought it was courageous. I mean, with every politician, I always have to ask myself, how authentic is this or is this the right thing? But I've heard her mention it in Stump you know, speeches. I've heard her say it on Fox News, and I, I caught a clip back. And And actually, like, what... Senator Gillenbrand said, can only be said by white people to other white people, right? See, if, if me as a black person say it to a white person, then, you know, oh, I'm upset or oh, I'm playing a race card or et cetera, et cetera. We, we need other white folks to speak with other white folks who have done the history and say, hey, listen, talking about racism and the reality of racial injustice does not disappear the reality that white people also have struggles and challenges in the world. Black people have not been saying generally that white folks don't have any struggles in the world. What we've been talking about is there is a very systematic way in which we are being impacted by uh, racism and white supremacy that is different. Different doesn't have to mean deficient. It just means different. I think Senator Gillibrand really demonstrated something that I hope a lot of our white relatives can pick up on this notion, because one of the things that I saw, I mean, I don't know, I can't see it as a white person. I can only see it from how I see it. Right. But the, the one thing that I felt like kind of came across was that she didn't give it with a level of condescension. She didn't give it with a level of arrogance or, you know, I've I've read the lady, the latest anti-racism book. So now I'm the genius and I get to correct everybody. But the way in which I heard it from her was was giving it in a way of understanding. And I think, you know, black people, we talk about race every day. I was talking about white hoes before. He said, how much do y'all talk? He, he was like, you talk about race every day? I said, every day? I mean, when I go home, if not through text messages during the day, I've had three to four conversations about race in my family every day. And that has happened every day of the week, you know, except when we're on vacation, you know, for, for the last 40 plus years of my life. And he said, wow, in my family, we never talk about race. So I think when we're like, what needs to change? It's that. Right. It's, it's not what happens outside. But if those conversations are happening inside, 
then I think it creates the kind of story and narrative that the senator gave. And uh, wow, what a world would be if if we were all able to tell a similar story that is about this notion of making sure that we all can thrive. And she was talking about understanding that just her race offered her a privilege, yep. but you know, on its on its face, mm-hmm. and that she by understanding that she can better understand how the issue of race exists in America and what you can start to do about it. Is that a, a yeah. general characterization of this? I think that's what she she gave to us. She gave the framework of helping white folks also recognize that they too have pain, but that the pain is different. Yeah. And and that there are systemic ways in which blacks and others are being impacted and to just understand that and what would it look like, man? And I think that's what she was pointing to. Let's start working on some solutions that can directly get at the heart of what has been the practice of racism in this country for the last 300 years, recognizing this was our message in Black Lives Matter, that when Black Lives Matter, then all lives will matter. So if the the, the same challenges that are happening for our white relatives that have been involved in the opioid crisis over the last couple of years been happening for black folks over the last 30 to 40 years. It just wasn't a crisis. Crack wasn't seen as a crisis of health. Crack was seen as a crisis of crime. But if we can figure out how to respond to some of these things together, it'll help us be responsive to to all of the the challenges that people are feeling. The the last question I'll I'll pose to you is around narrative because mm. we've been we've been talking about everyone and their cousin wants to shift the narrative on this and shift the narrative on that but you can't just issue a press release to say that the narrative has been shifted. How do you start to change the way people's minds work mm. when they talk about this issue? And we want to shift the narrative on race. We also want to shift the narrative what is right versus left and mm-hmm. how do you deal with a you know how do you move forward? What do you, what do you say to people who say, Ben, let's let's shift the narrative. Go, you know. Yeah, yeah. How do you react to that? That's a big question. You know, you you know, it's something I've raised to you a lot, and and we talked about it a lot uh, in in some of our initial conversations. I think shifting the narrative is super important um, because we all behave the way in which we do based upon whatever stories are informing us, right? You know, like I, I use this example all the time where I say, uh, we we will walk and cross the street because someone told us somewhere that somebody else said somewhere that if you walk between the two white lines on the asphalt, this vehicle that is traveling at 35 miles an hour will stop and will not run you over. And we all risk our lives every day because somebody told us that story. Now, None of us knows who told us the story exactly and when they told us, but somehow we believe that story. And then we saw people practicing that story and they weren't getting run down. And every now and again, you'll see somebody get hit or almost hit, but it never throws off the story because you've seen enough people tell you the story and live the story to make you feel like it works. And we're able to move around in society and navigate people walking and cars moving in that way. I think when I think about shifting the narrative, I'm asking myself, what are the new stories? that need to be told, that are stories that help us step into the middle of the street around difference of race, of gender, of sexual orientation, of ideas, of place, that help us step into those um, spaces. But I don't think it's just stories that we tell. They also have to be stories that people see people practicing so that people are hearing a story and then they're seeing a story practice in the way that's going. Those people still haven't died. They haven't been run over. They've been able to find some level of success. So it it does make me wonder, like, 
uh, how are we putting out into the atmosphere and into society stories that are really helping to affirm uh, the best of who we can be, stories that are helping us to really do uh, some real reconciliation around our history that are that are helping everyone recognize how we got here, but then stories that are helping us figure out where we need to go. And that's where I think powerful things like movies and digital media and, and other ways really um, help people begin to get a new kind of future. You know, I'm a science fiction fan, and I'm glad because we're finally starting to get some science fiction that actually have <laughs> black people in the future. You know, I, I, I used to laugh and go, man, what's the matter with all the white people in science fiction? They'll never have no black people in the future. <laughs> it's, it's, it's some kind of prophetic dream that's going on here. What's going on? But I think the more we can get things out, out there, I think also the way in which we we get storytelling happening in local levels, in different sectors, in the private sector, in government, in social change, in arts and cultures, get a lot more storytelling. Um, I think it'll help to shift some folks. I mean, it's either that or all of us old fogies just die out and the kids create the world. But I, I don't want to just die in the wilderness, man. I, w- I want to give me a little taste of this promised land if we can. Wow, narrative is like a crosswalk. I have have you, have you been using that before? Because <laughs> or did you just make that up? Now? No, no. I've been I've been, uh, been working. Uh, I, I, I've been I've been thinking and sharing some of these kind of dynamics. You know, it it came out of you know this this notion. When I think about the crosswalk. I I think. That's how I think about bridging. It's like going from one side to the other. But I think it's all about story. And uh, we need new old stories, if that makes sense. I just love that metaphor. (laughs) I love that. That I'm now going to have to. I I promise to always quote you. There you go. I will always give you credit. No, you're my homie. And you know, in the black community, what we do is we say the first time, we quote you. The second time, we say it has been said. The third time, it's yours. Or if you steal from one, it's it's uh, it's a plagiarism. If you steal from many, it's research. There we go. There we go. All right. So it's not just us. It's not just us. I love that. Um, and now you know why my head, the top of my head came off the week we spent together. I really, really appreciate your time. I, we're going to have to come back and do more of this because yeah. we just have gotten, we haven't even gotten started. Ben McBride, thank you so very much. That was fabulous. Thanks, Eric. Okay, everybody, and here we're back. Um, wow, Eric Brown with the Reverend Ben McBride from Pico, California. Eric, one of your new favorite people on earth, and <laughs> wow, wow, wow. You know, of all of the directions we can go, of course, our podcast is nominally about communications, but I feel like it's we taking some really that, good we, we turns. We talk about communications. So one of the comments I want to make is that Every bit of the language, every bit of the words, every bit of the framing, I mean, clearly there's the uh, intelligence and intention underneath it, but just starting from that first conversation where Pico is about expanding what it is to belong, I'm at the edge of my seat just listening to uh, Ben talk about what all of that means in terms of the work and his background with it. I love that balance between how he's framing the work and then how he's coming at it from a deeply personal place. It's really, it was astounding. And again, so generous in his willingness to go through this journey with you. It was really something to listen to. It really, it was an honest conversation. It wasn't quite the, like the rum soaked <laughs> conversations we, we had on the Malicon in, in Havana, but it got, 
it got pretty honest. And that's just the kind of person he is. I think that's probably what makes him a great pastor is that people can talk to him and he can speak with them with real authenticity. And I have to tell you, actually, so we always joke about how we never actually get to the communications part. I, I, that's mm. kind of not true. Yeah, sure. Because I learned from Ben and I learned from John Powell and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this narrative business that everyone keeps talking about. Every narrative this and narrative that without fully understanding myself what we mean by that. But the mm. one thing that I do believe that we must do is to come up with a new way to communicate and to tell stories about what can be, about what the possibilities are, rather than reducing everything into a zero-sum game in which there are winners and losers and in, in which as soon as you win something, you have to defend it because the losers feel like they lost. And that's not what Ben is talking about. Ben is talking about building bridges across differences that co-create, in which people have an opportunity to co-create a better future. And co-create means people across differences work together to create something in which they both feel like, or in which they all feel like winners. That's where the narrative shift, however you want to define it, has to go, if you ask me. And I learned that from Ben, and I learned that from John, and I'm learning it from people every single day who are teaching me how we have to think about new ways of expressing ourselves and building these bridges. I know it sounds so optimistic and so, you know, people will say I'm naive that you have to smite the enemy, but I don't think it's gotten us far enough. Well, and interestingly, this is this would be one of my critiques of uh, philanthropy as we've both experienced it. You know, most of the philanthropy that I'm aware of has no problem trying to engage in the impossible. You know, let's solve poverty. <laughs> let's change education. But philanthropy hates to do what's hard. It's really interesting. So I want to do the impossible, but I want to leverage my investments so I know that things are happening. And what I hear you describing, what I hear you and Ben talking about is actually doing the work. And so you know how I've talked with you about you've got this 20-minute moment always. And I think that in Havana, your 20-minute moment started like with the first rum, you know, that was delivered, it sounds like. <laughs> no, this... no. The first rum took less than 20 minutes to drink, I <laughs> That's what assure I you. So this this is the 11-minute moment because that's where Ben starts talking about this, this build, bridge, and belong idea. And, oh, my gosh, everything about that. I love the alliteration. I love that it feels meaningful and real. I love that it feels right. But he starts talking about this idea of we've got to build a shared humanity. We've got to bridge across our differences. And then we've got to really think about how we create the structures and systems that, you know, he was talking about in the case of his work in Oakland, repurposes the city you know, allows people to be in relationship. And it's funny because we talk about that. You can talk about that as narrative. He's, he uses story a lot. You know, mm -hmm. he talked about story a lot, but it also feels like there's a real element here where you've got to be willing to actually get into the field and do the work, you know? And I feel like we've been hearing that from people throughout the podcast. And I think somehow accidentally in terms of how we've brought people on to talk with this, but it feels like there's a consistent drumbeat of perspective that the change is really happening based on the day in day out commitment people are making to actually really take up these challenges and work at them from a very strong sense of place. Do you think that that's a fair comment or, or how would you characterize that in terms of what you're hearing Ben talk about? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a very fair comment. Yeah. Uh obvious next question is, okay, how do you take that sense of place and extend it to mm. a, a more, I don't know if you want to call it a metaphysical place, 
but a place that isn't bound by space. Mm. And I I know that it's possible. I swear. <laughs> I swear I know it's possible. And, you know, Ben is, he is doing it in place, but he is also doing it in, he's doing difficult things. I mean, you know, working with the Oakland police. Yes, right. Yeah. Is not an easy thing. And there are many people in the Oakland community who feel very alienated by the police. Yeah. And he is managing, finding ways to build bridges. It is not easy. It doesn't always go smoothly. And he doesn't always enjoy everyone whom he's working with. But he, I do believe he's making a difference. And those are the kinds of differences perhaps that, okay, maybe let's think about it a different way, it, which is that people do it in places all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and you bring that together at some point, these threads come together in a way that builds a true movement that does bridge across differences, that comes up with a new way to address some of these seemingly intractable challenges that we have all, well, that many, many people have grappled with for a long time with not nearly as much success as they would have hoped. Right. How does this pyramid of individual relationships grow up and expand to become the thing that actually defines our reality instead of it's just kind of at the margins? You know, it's it's funny. He um, in talking about that work with the Oakland police and, you know, again, yeah, describing it, bridging across differences. I love how he says, yep, this is another group of indiv- individuals who are afraid and they've accepted a tribal identity as a way to find a sense of belonging and safety. And, you know, I realized after the um, the Christchurch shootings you know, in the spring, and again, just this horrible cadence of these shootings that are happening. There was an interview with um, Christian Picciolini, who was a former neo-Nazi and then has been talking about his transition away from, away from white, white supremacy. And what he says in his interviews, he says, and what drew me in at 14 years old in 1987 was that I was searching for identity, community, and purpose. And, and so just this, this refrain about where does identity, community, and purpose come from and what direction does that put you on, it feels like um, it feels like Ben is absolutely living in that. Now, part of his story, and he tells us many of his individual stories, how about this idea that he uh, stopped pastoring, as he says it, <laughs> right. and he relocated his family, his wife and his three daughters, to the kill zone. Are you kidding me? Um, so but, he's clearly not just mailing it in from no. the, the office on the 25th floor what's, or what, yeah. what, but what have you. His story of his first night in that house is so <laughs> yes. classic and wonderful. For one thing, right. it is absolutely fabulous storytelling because it yes. has this twist ending. But right. it also was a reminder about the, the, I don't know, the pictures we draw in our head about a place that you can't yeah. understand until you live there. And yeah. that, I mean, it's just a, it, was, it was self-deprecating. It was, like I said, un, um, it was a, had a surprise ending. It's a great story, but it's also a great reminder that we create these stereotypes in our heads that are hard to overcome unless you actually walk in those places. And, you know, Ben, ben is still pastoring and <laughs> I, I can't wait to go and I can't wait to go and, and, and hear him hear him preach. Well, and, and then, you know, the generosity of the conversation, you, um, you know, more towards the back half, you say, let's get serious and then let's talk about race, you know, and, um, and I, I felt that you and Ben had a really wonderful back and forth and you actually referred to which Senator was it from the debates who had the, who had the, 
uh, Kirsten it, Gillibrand. Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah. Yeah. Had the comment and um, whose name I butchered. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. It's, well, and if we can figure out the technology, I think that we should drop her comment into the podcast in case not everybody got a chance to hear um, hear what she had to say. But then um, Ben talked about uh, Dr. Eberhardt, Jennifer Lynn Eberhardt from Stanford, who has written about this whole topic. She's a, a social psychologist um, saying that when we start talking about race, our bodies respond as if we're getting ready for a fight that this whole piece is so deeply ingrained in us. And then we get the great quote, the C.S. Lewis aside, what you see depends on where you're standing. And so just how, how does, how would you reflect on your chance, this opportunity to talk with Ben both here, but also what you guys did in Cuba and have that conversation, what you called, you know, one of the, some of the most authentic discussions about race that you've ever had a chance to have, because again, it was just really, really great to be able to listen in and participate in that part of what you guys were talking about. Well, let's put it this way. We certainly didn't feel like we were ready for a fight when we had this conversation. We were ready for engagement. And we were, mm. there was no, I mean, Ben is the least judgy person I've ever met. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he just lets you express yourself. And he, and, he, and he does that by expressing himself in an honest and thoughtful and caring way so that you don't feel defensive or you don't, whatever feel the need to explain or all that stuff yeah. and you know when when kirsten jillibrand talks about about privilege it that is that is a very hard thing to talk about mm. and if you can be in a conversation with somebody across difference and we're different although well, we didn't get into we didn't get into the fun stuff where we realized how similar we were to our yeah. daughters are into the theater his daughter goes to boston university I'm with mm. NYU, and they're working on we had these conversations about what do we do with our kids when they you know go into the theater and how do we feel about that and we were both on the same page about letting them express themselves and that they're young and here's the opportunity. And like pretty soon we were like, yeah, we're like the same guy. How about us? <laughs> so it's that too. And where you just feel a camaraderie with somebody and it, it enables you to have fun, interesting, candid conversations. Well, and that sensibility infuses all of his work. I mean, he started the conversation there saying people want some more things and you know, we want to take care of our families, have a bit of fun, do something that's meaningful, have a place to live. Um, and, and then, you know, towards the end, you're talking about, and I just love this turn. He said, you know, we don't need allies. Like we've, we've got plenty of allies. What we really need are siblings and, and saying <laughs> that, you know, siblings get in the way of trouble. If it's happening yeah. for you, it's happening for me. If it's man, if it's happening for you, it's happening for me. I, to me, I feel like that sensibility is what's underneath all of progressive communications as far as I'm concerned. You know, this idea that we're trying to use the power of language and connection to help people understand that we are not separate and isolated, you know, that there's a real shared resonance for all of this. But um, it's just beautiful, right? It's just beautiful. He's willing to talk about all this and, and tons of learning just hearing him go through everything. Absolutely. Well, you know, if there's a theme, these themes kind of emerge. They are not anything we plan. It's better yeah. to be lucky than good, Kirk. Um, <laughs> but, Thank God for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you, you can you can extend from the conversation that I had with Donnie Sandoval of yes. Lava Man. If people haven't listened to that conversation, I really encourage you to go back and listen to because what she is saying is a version of that, which is if you can really see somebody 
then you can understand what you, you you can communicate with them in a different way. You can think of them and treat them in a different way. And I think that's a version of what, or even a, maybe a precursor to what Ben is saying, which is that you can become somebody's sibling in yeah. that you will be willing to engage with them on their, it, it, by way of their needs. Yeah. And that's as opposed to standing apart from somebody and being their ally in, in some way. I, these concepts go together. I'm fully formed it, as you can obviously tell. But the, this notion of seeing and engaging on this other level, on a sibling level, feel like they're related and that the more we feel like we understand people and can connect with them on a deep and emotional level, the harder it is to, you know, to demonize them. No, I think you're so right. And I think to me then you finish your conversation about narrative, you know, and this whole conversation about narrative. And I think there's a really interesting nugget then underneath that whole consideration because as we're playing with narrative and how stories shape us and how powerful they are, there's it feels like there's a very interesting balancing in that around what you're talking about, which is the seeing or the listening that's so crucial for us to actually understand how to communicate effectively. And I thought it was interesting, even when you were from the very beginning, when you were talking about Pico working in California and you mentioned that California looks blue. And I thought that was such a beautiful illustration of this thing about language where what do these words mean anyway? You know, and, 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 and Ben was like, yep, blue is a sense of perspective, isn't it? You know, cause there's a lot of us who live here who would say that there's a lot of, you know, issues here that are just like any other place. And so what a conversation. Yeah. It's so exciting. So Ben McBride, Pico, California, um, some great references. We'll drop, uh, notes for some of the folks that he mentions. Um, and even Dr. Um, Eberhardt, you know, has actually a new book out called biased, huh. um, where she's looking at this stuff. So we can drop a link to that in the notes for this episode too. But man, Eric, what a conversation. That Thank was you. fun. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that definitely includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Limited Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments, all for their generous support for this work. Oh, and check out Heinz's terrific podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at heinz.org slash podcast. Absolutely. And we certainly thank today's guest and, of course, all of you for listening. And thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Till next time. <laughs> Let's hear it.